The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, my voice is near death, but I, f- I feel better than I sound. Uh, I guess we're back, and, and I'm just going to struggle through this one with this voice. And the audience can't see this, but you look fantastic. Thank you, Paul. You're, just, you're as handsome as ever. I just want to be the first to say that out Okay, loud. so we have two a great guest hosts with us, uh, Cyrus Askin and Leah Witt, both returning. for They've been here many times. Cyrus, Leah, thank you for coming back. Thank you so much for having us. All right. So, Paul, uh, before Cyrus tells everybody about our wonderful guests, just can you quickly remind them what we do on this show? Quickly, even sans scolding, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Okay. And we are going to get right to it. Cyrus, tell them about our guests so we can get to the show. Absolutely. So very happy to be here with uh, with Leah to also bring with us Dr. Denitza Blagev, who you may remember for our episodes on asthma and COPD. She continues her work at, as the Director of Quality at the Schmidt Chest uh, Clinic in the Intermountain uh, Medical Center over in Murray, Utah. She did complete a pulmonary and critical care fellowship at UCSF and her internal medicine residency at Beth Israel after graduating from NYU School of Medicine. Um, again, I'll be here with, uh, with Matt and Paul. Unfortunately, Stuart's not going to be with us. Um, also fortunate enough to have Leah on as well as Denitza. We're super excited to share with you some great pearls and insights, and we hope that that will help demystify pulmonary nodules and empower you to take great care of your patients. All right. Denitza, thank you for coming back. And before we get started, just tell the audience, remind them who you are, give them your one-liner, and then, and then we'll get on with the show. Um, so my name is Denise Blagov. I'm a pulmonary and critical care doc at Intermountain Healthcare and uh, University of Utah, and I'm actually uh, the medical director for quality uh, specialty-based care at Intermountain Healthcare. Well, thank you so much for coming back. And uh, you, since you've been on the show before and answered all our usual questions, maybe give the audience a pick of the week, and then I'll, I'll ask some of our co-hosts here if they have picks of the week as well. Um, so I have a couple. One is um, the book Educated. Uh, and uh, if you haven't read it, it's made a bunch of the um, sort of best of lists over the last year or two. So it's well worth the read. Um, and I actually uh, gave it as a gift to some of our trainees because I thought it was really influential. It's kind of a something about the value of education and, and transformation. So nonfiction memoir. Who's next for Picks of the Week? Leah, did you have a, a Pick of the Week? Oh, I have one um, that I was really obsessed with, but it, like any Netflix binge, it lasted for a weekend and now it's over. Um, I, I binged the series Cheer on Netflix when I was flying to Cleveland to meet up with my residency friends. And it was a really good bingeable series for that five-hour flight. Um, anyway, I... You have to go see it if you like sports, if you like athleticism, if you like Friday Night Lights, anything um, like that. It, it follows basically these cheerleaders, um, incredible, basically gymnast athletes, as they're preparing for their national competition. And it's amazing. I never want to let my child be a cheerleader. It's very dangerous. <laughs> okay, Cyrus, what do you have? So first off, yeah, um, my wife watched Cheer, big fan, so I would second that. Um, she's got reasonably good taste, I will say. Um, and then for for me, uh, I'll also uh, this is this shows how well um, how how much of a scholar I am. I'm also going to go with Netflix, and um, I'm going to go with The Witcher. Uh, which I thought was really great. I was a big Game of Thrones fan, and I honestly felt like the first season of The Witcher um, was better than the first season of Game of Thrones. That may be an unpopular opinion. I'm ready for the flack. <laughs> Is that based on a books like a, ser- a book series like Game of Thrones was? So it's based on, I believe, it's either a, a series of books or a series of graphic uh, novels that are that were Polish. Um, and then from there, they spun off like a video game series. And then they also did, of course, um, English translations. And then they were, I guess, fortunate enough to get Henry Cavill to play the main role. 
um, who for, I, I guess, is a heartthrob amongst um, certain demographics. <laughs> Superman, right? Yeah. Uh, indeed, yes. Sure, I suppose um, he's objectively handsome if you like chiseled features <laughs> and incredibly buff guys. Like, I guess he's all right. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I would take Paul over him in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, thank you. But, you know, it is what it is. So some, you know. Anyway, it was very, very entertaining. Highly recommend it. Very bingeable. Paul, did you want to give a recommendation? Do you want to talk yeah, about cats I, again? No, I, I mean, I could talk about it for hours. I've not stopped thinking about it, but I'm, I'm going to talk about it instead. So I'm, I'm just coming off a week of service that has just been emotionally punishing. I have certain comfort foods for my brain that I like. So the one I'm going to actually recommend is the album uh, Uptime Downtime by the by the group, the electronic group, the Kleptones. And it's basically, I don't know if you guys remember when mashups were a thing. So it's a mashup album from 2010. And it's just an hour of just pure gold. Like, no one wants to see me dancing. It is ghastly, but it's probably as close as I come to dancing listening to it. And, like, there's there's mashups of, like, Busta Rhymes and No Doubt. There's um, sort of reworkings of Beastie Boys. Like, it, it's just spectacular. Oh, it's just an hour of pure gold. kleptones, you said? The kleptones, yep. Oh, dang. Okay, definitely. That's a must listen. And it's, like, you can just go to their SoundCloud and just download it just for free. So just do yourself a treat. Just pause the podcast. Go download the album. And then just, it's, it's phenomenal. So if you need to cheer it up, it is a fantastic album. So... Uptime, downtime, the kleptones. All right. Well, with that, let's go to a case from Cashlack Memorial. And uh, Cyrus the Younger, did you want to read the uh, first case here? Yes. I've yet to meet Cyrus the Older, but that's okay. Um, All right. So we'll go ahead and uh, we'll talk about a gentleman by the name of Roger Kint. Uh, He's a 44-year-old never smoker, and he presents to our primary care clinic at Cashlack. Uh, after he had some chest pain that resulted in a coronary CT. Uh, His chest pain evaluation resulted in a diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux disease and squeaky clean coronaries. However, it did identify a 5mm solid pulmonary nodule in the lingula, as well as a 7mm pulmonary nodule in the right middle lobe. There was no mediastinal lymphadenopathy uh, on the scan. And So while Mr. Kent is grateful for a clean bill of coronary health, he is very worried about these nodules, Um, and he's coming to you for follow-up. He's anxious, he's confused, and just doesn't know what it all means. So I guess a great place to start this discussion of pulmonary nodules is, well, Dr. Blagev, what is a nodule? Um, What's a mass, and are they different? Are they the same? How uh, How do we use the terminology appropriately? So the definition of a pulmonary nodule is opacity that's less than three centimeters. And once that's the cutoff. So once you're above three centimeters, you're talking about a mass. Um, and then generally we think of nodules as sort of like the small ones, which is what this gentleman's um, CT would fall into, where there's a sub-centimeter nodules that are really kind of the small ones where the probability of malignancy is pretty low and and most of what we have to do is be sure to follow them because that probability is not zero. Um, And so so definitely if it's above three centimeters or above, you're into the mass and that's kind of a different algorithm. Um, And then even within nodules, if you're a sub-centimeter nodule, um, then that's kind of the lower risk group. And then the caveat here, I would say, is just, you know, when you have more than one nodule, so multiple versus single nodule, and with multiple nodules, I always run through what you need is a differential diagnosis, right? So do they have endocarditis? Um, Do they have vasculitis? Do they have a fungal pneumonia? Um, You know, do they have uh, metastatic cancer? And, And that is a much bigger sort of clinical question that's not answered by most nodule algorithms, which really are mostly meant to encompass the um, kind of generally solitary pulmonary nodule. So Danita, I think we can call this nodule, these nodules incidental. So we weren't looking for them. We weren't expecting them. How would you suggest that primary care doctor, so if Mr. Kint goes to his primary care doctor, um, talk about the nodules and um, talk to him about what the possibilities are and what future CT scans would look like. You know, I, so these would be, you're right, incidental pulmonary nodules. They're, um, so for age 35 and older is when you start 
kind of applying the algorithms and in people that are low risk that you or you know you want to assess the risk in terms of do they have a family history or smoking history but there's several guidelines so the the general guidelines will be the Fleischner Society guidelines where you can kind of follow that algorithm and then the other major one is for lung cancer screening um, and what I often will start with, even in incidental pulmonary nodules, is to do the risk calculator of what is this person's chance of malignancy um, based on the nodule size and their risk factors. And that gives me a sense of how worried I should be and how worried they should be. So just, you know, we didn't talk about his risk factors or smoking history, but um, generally you take the higher size nodule if it's two incidental ones six millimeters and under are kind of considered negative. So really it's, um, you know, six millimeters and over. So you're looking at that seven millimeter nodule um, in a 40 year old. So the chance of cancer is low, but I, I would generally calculate it when I talk to people. One, one comment and question about, about that, the, uh, the incidental nodules, um, they, they mentioned that this the Fleischner criteria apply to patients who are not immunosuppressed because patients who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed it's a whole different like differential as you mentioned and then my other question is you mentioned because if you look at the Fleischner that table that they have you know it, it for each nodule size it says is this a low risk or high risk patient and you mentioned some of the risk factors but they're a little bit vague about like what what calculator should we use so what do you do in your practice and what would you recommend to the audience so the one where it's, I mean, tobacco history is the most quantifiable one. So I end up having, sorting people into three groups. I sort, so I go through the risk calculator and really just look at uh, tobacco history, um, kind of pack years, and did they quit within the last 15 years? In a sense to see, do they meet, even though this was a CT that they came to incidentally, are they eligible for lung cancer screening and therefore they're high risk? And if they are, then I would sort of follow the lung RADS algorithm, mm -hmm. even though the CT by which I discovered it was um, incidental. In a 40-year-old, he wouldn't qualify for lung cancer screening. Um, and if he's a non-smoker and doesn't, you know, I'll ask about family history of lung cancer, um, kind of, um, you know, occupational exposures, which are can be hard to quantify, um, you know, because uh, generally if you're talking about asbestos exposure, you're not looking for someone whose building had that ice, uh, insulation. You're looking for people that are working with that. And um, anyway, tobacco history, family history of lung cancer, personal history of other cancer, um, and then occupational history. And if all of that's negative, then they're low risk. And if some of that's positive, but not enough to be high-risk lung cancer screening, then I put them into this Fleischner high-risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I think I think in um in lung, uh, sorry, in Fleischner, and correct me if I'm wrong. They also include things like uh, location of the nodule, i.e., is it apical? Um, and then they also talk about you know risk being greater in women than in men. Is that something that you put a lot of stock into or do they have to have like something else in addition to that for you to kind of upgrade them, so to speak? For those aspects, honestly, I use the calculator because it'll be, and depending, and you know, there's several out there. So um, the Brock one is on up to date, so you can plug it in. Um, you know, um, I use the shouldiscreen.com and that'll factor in, um, you know, like age, sex, education, um, you know, uh, location of the nodule and that kind of thing. But I, if I'm going to factor in more than the big picture, then I use a calculator because there are risk models that factor those in. And it's, you know, it's hard to keep all of that in your head and the weights of them associated with it. Mm. So how would you, this, this patient, uh, the case mentioned that he's really distressed because you know, he hears nodule, something growing in my lungs that shouldn't be there, and he's thinking it's cancer. What, like, what does it sound like when you counsel a patient who's freaking out about a lung nodule? So one of the nice things about lung rads, um, and again, lung rads would be higher risk than he is, but even for someone with risk factors, is that 
um, it'll tell you kind of what the risk of cancer in that nodule is. So for someone um, that's 40 years old with a single, you know, with a seven millimeter pulmonary nodule, his risk is going to be well under 5% and probably under 1%. Um, and so I think that helps to set expectations about what it is. And because ultimately what you're going to recommend is not um, a lung resection, uh, but a follow-up CT. And so I think a lot of that visit is about understanding that risk and making people comfortable with the idea that like just going out to have a lung surgery to remove it is probably not the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of that is establishing trust. And again, I find that people get overwhelmed because they're thinking like, you know, they can't tell the difference between mass and nodule, right? They're sort of thinking spot in my lung. And I think having something printed at the end of that, that has those numbers where they, when they go to talk to their family members, that rationale is clear, is helpful. What concretely for this simple country doc, what, what words are you using when you're sort of initially talking to patients about a finding that is concerning? Yeah, understand what I mean? So like nodules, like for me, I'm using words like it's a ditzel and we should probably make sure it's not anything scary. So all these sort of nice deliasms, which is a nice way of saying we're trying to make sure it's not cancer. But when you're when you're having this conversation, like what are the words you actually use to describe things or sort of how do you start the conversation, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so I'll use the word nodule because uh, in this day and age, most people will have access to their CT scan reports. And so I want to be consistent with what they're seeing on the CT. I also find that people don't have a clear idea of what seven millimeters is. So I'll use just a visual aid, like the tip of my pen to sort of use my thumb to show them like it's something this big, right? So that they have a sense of like, oh, that's pretty small. Um, you know, we have computers in every exam room, so I will pull it up and show them the CT scan. And of course, when you see the CT scan, you'll see tons of dots and lines. So I'll say like, you know, right, most right. of these dots and lines are blood vessels and normal lung tissue. And here's the tiny thing we're talking about that shouldn't be there. And I think this is a situation where a picture is worth a thousand words and a picture is worth a thousand words, even to the physicians, right? Like when you hear about a radiology report of a lung finding, I, like I feel like I'm still lost into how I need to triage it until I pull up the scan and I'm like, oh, okay, I got it, right? Um, so I think I think that's my strategy is to sort of show them what it is. Sure. For me, it's a little bit tricky because these sub-centimeter nodules, chances are I may not even see them. So unless there's an arrow sign, I might be in trouble, but I can see how that might be useful. Cyrus, as as someone who's recently had to, you know, start explaining this to people as like a, a pulmonary fellow, what have you come up with? It? I, I think you told me you had an analogy for this. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear what both uh, Denitza and Leah think. Um, so I find the easiest way to try to break it down for my patients is to um, kind of draw the analogy between the lung nodules and uh, kind of skin lesions. And so I'll say that, you know, some skin lesions are moles or scars or skin tags, and they're maybe a vestige of something that you encountered long ago, and it doesn't really mean a whole lot, and it's going to likely not change and not really bother you at all. And then I'll say some, um, you know, some may grow and, and that still may not be such a big deal. Um, they may wax and wane. And then lastly, you do have some that are, you know, like a basal cell or maybe like a melanoma, which can be actually quite scary and quite concerning. And I just try to tell them that, you know, more often than not, it's the non-concerning stuff that we're finding, but sometimes what we find matters and needs to be addressed. And so I find that when I when I phrase it that way or put it in that context, it tends to be a little bit more approachable because patients can see their skin and, you know, most patients can't actually lay eyes on their lungs. Um, so that's kind of how I approach it. I don't know. I'm curious though to hear what Denise and Leah think. I think that's a great analogy. I'm going to steal it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think any, most patients will, I think, understand that sort of analogy. Um, because, you know, what I am seeing is that people feel like there's something in my lung. There shouldn't be something in my lung. And I think what you're explaining is there's a lot of normal variants and scars and fungal exposures that have resolved and things like that that people don't realize um, if they hadn't gotten a scan. That's great. Yeah, huh. I, I love that. I mostly actually use it. Um, 
I use the skin analogy also for like when the CT says prior granulomatous disease, right? So you have nodules, but you don't have to follow them uh, and sort of make that analogy of like, well, you can see the small scars in your skin, but you know, now that we have fancy CTs, we can see the scar small scars in your lung, but it's not something to worry about. But I hadn't extended the to melanoma basal cell. That's pretty good. <laughs> Denitza, I wanted to ask about um, before we before we move off nodules and and go on to like lung cancer screening specifically. There's there's solid nodules and there's like a little bit different cutoffs from semi solid nodules, and then the the time frame for monitoring differs too, right? So solid nodules you follow up to two years, and semi solid nodules you follow up to five years. Can you talk talk a little bit about the difference between them? Yeah, and I'll have to say so. There is solid, semi-solid, and pure ground glass. Okay. So the pure, so semi-solid, oddly enough, have like a higher risk of lung cancer, um, huh. and uh, and so those you and most of you know Fleischner will break it down, and so you can follow for lung rads. It'll mostly just assume it's all solid, but it'll give you kind of the, you'll follow the solid component. Um, and if the solid component grows, but the ground glass, you know, if the total size of the nodule is the same, but the solid component grows, then you're more worried. Um, the pure ground glass nodules are the ones that um, have malignancy risk, but are slower growing. So you follow them for longer, um, and you don't have to follow them as frequently. Um, and so that's kind of the trade-off. Um, but honestly, for all of these, I just print out the, the current Fleischner table and the current Lungrads table, and I refer to them every time. And, um, you know, and I do this for a living, and I refer to them every time. It's yeah. just you're not expected to have them memorized, or at least most of us don't. Yeah. Um, Leah or Cyrus, do you have any, any tricks for how you remember all these cutoffs and everything? Or you also just use the, like, just pull up the table. It seems like. No, I pull up the table. Yeah. Um, I pull up the table and also I think I'm lucky because our radiologist will also write according to Fleischner criteria, follow up in one year. (laughs) But you know, if that's not what's happening, I'm referring to, I'm referring to criteria. This, this seems like a big problem just logistically like with the number of scans that are done and tracking yes. these over time, what what is uh, what does Cashlack West do for that, Leah? Uh, I was just sitting here thinking that we should talk about that because, yeah, I mean, think of the number of uh, incidental findings that come in, uh, up during ER visits. Yeah, um, I, you know, so in so many situations, I just learned a really good. I'm lucky. I, you know, I do geriatrics. I see my patients pretty frequently. Um, but I learned a good trick from another primary care doctor who sends herself these, we can do these remind me send, um, Mm. notifications. So if the follow-up needs to happen in three months, she'll time it to happen in three months. And similarly, she'll send the patient a my chart message time for when the scan needs to happen. So I think that's one way to help things not fall through the cracks. Um, I don't know if any of you have um, work in or other cash like branches where where it's more institutionalized. Um, but th- that's for myself how I try to keep things from slipping through the cracks. We're super fortunate at cash like North Northeast because um, <laughs> we have a program that's coordinated by cardiothoracic surgery that actually do pre counseling prior to the CT scan. They actually do tobacco cessation counseling if necessary and then bring the patients back post CT to re- then review the results and sort of talk about intervals. So we, it's um, relatively it's brainless for me, which is nice if you can actually get the patients into the program, but I'm not sure if that's. So that's, that's for lung cancer screening. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, not incidental findings. No. Yeah. yeah. We did. Um, we published a study actually just from our institution that about 10% of CTPAs ordered in the emergency department have incidental pulmonary nodules that require follow-up. So that means if the CT report said consistent with prior granulomatous disease, that didn't count. So 10% had ostensibly recommended follow-up. And the problem is 
that, you know, people are coming in with their chest pain, they get the CTPA, maybe they're getting a cath and their STEMI addressed. And by the end of that hospitalization and by the end of that visit, nobody remembers and nobody follows it up. Um, it's a, I would say it's an ongoing and huge problem. And the places where the best that medicine currently does at this is to have some algorithm of someone gets alerted to nodules and has a system for following it up as a system. But it, you know, it's obviously not a sustainable model. It seems like it just needs to be automated. It, it needs yeah. to be automated. Yeah. And the impetus, so I got interested in this because as a pulmonary fellow, I saw a patient who, you know, had had a chest x-ray in urgent care for cough or something. And, um, you know, at that time, radiology was on 24-7. The person in the emergency department looked at the x-ray and said, oh, you know, no pneumonia. They were sent home. They followed up with their PCP over the next couple of years with increasing symptoms until they got a, you know, a scan that showed metastatic lung cancer. Oh, God. Um, you know, like it happens. One component is risk assessment in terms of what risk do they follow? What guidelines are you going to follow? And communicating the patient's risk so that they are appropriately concerned and not concerned. So being able to wait for serial CTs and also not just forgetting about it completely. Um, but then the really key component is to ensure follow-up. So um, what system will you and the patient have together? Because especially in the current day and age when most of it, where most of us are not seeing patients for decades at a time, people move, insurance changes, um, the patient has to have enough information to know what the plan for that follow-up is. And you know, we followed mammography kind of guidelines in terms of reminders and things. Um, but even if they no-show to our clinic, we'll send reminders and things to ensure that that, that doesn't get dropped because that's usually where it falls down. Okay, thank you. And and one other, you reminded me that I did want to uh, point this out to the audience. So kind of to recap, on the nodules, incidental nodules for patients who aren't immunocompromised that are over 35 years old, we're you know, we're going to look at the size of the nodule and some of the risk factors that you mentioned, some of the patient risk factors to see if they're low or high risk. But for for most, if you look at the Fleischner, for most ta uh, nodules less than six millimeters, there's either no routine follow-up or it's optional if you think it's a high-risk patient. And then for anything above six millimeters, there's often some sort of follow-up imaging. Any, it could be three months, six months, kind of varies. And you would look at the table. Yeah. And I will add to that that um, the cutoff of what do we consider a positive nodule that requires consideration is now if it's less than six millimeters, we're done. So if they're low risk, they do not require any more follow-up. If they're low-dose screening, then they just do their annual follow-up. Um, yeah. And that's why it's kind of optional in that Fleischner others. Um, it used to be four millimeters. So if people have that in number in their head, really, if you have a four millimeter nodule and a non-smoker, you're done. They do not require follow-up. Okay. All right, Leah, I think we're ready to move on now. Thank you. All right. So let's move on to lung cancer screening. Um, so case two is Josephine Camel, a 54. Seven-year-old uh, woman, fifty-seven-year-old woman who's new to your clinic. She says she's always been healthy, doesn't take any medications. Um, she's not uh, a fan of going to the doctor's office. Um, during your initial interview, she says she smoked about one pack per day of cigarettes from the age of seventeen until age fifty. So our question here is: Does Josephine qualify for lung cancer screening? And if so, if if she does or if she doesn't, why or why not? Um, and one other, sorry, did you say she's still smoking? Or she stopped she quit? seven years ago, seven okay. years ago. Um, so lung cancer screening, um, there's over, so essentially what you're trying to assess is does somebody have a high risk of lung cancer, high enough to warrant lung cancer screening, right? And right. the key way that we're assessing that risk, at least the way it was assessed in the um, national lung uh, screening trial was by tobacco history. So um, by that trial, the criteria are 30 pack years of tobacco history and 
either current smoker or having quit within the past 15 years. So if they quit 30 years ago, their cancer risk goes down, so they wouldn't qualify. Um, and if they're a 15-pack year smoker, then they wouldn't qualify. Based on that initial trial, there were kind of risk models and extrapolations. And so there's slight variation between what the NLST criteria are, what the subsequent US Preventive Services Task Force criteria are that sort of are based on modeling from those data from the trial and what CMS said they will pay for. And so I think most of us now, because most of these patients are covered by Medicare, will follow the CMS guidelines. But just so you know, there's slight variation either in the pack years or in the age um, of, of lung cancer screening. But it's the CMS, is that the one that ends at 74 instead of 80? Mm -hmm. Is that the difference? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And like, um, and sorry, NLST was 55 to 74. USPSTF said, well, if you look at the model, really older people are at higher risk. So if you, and the trial went on for three years. So really, we think it can go up through. 80 and then CMS said it's 55 to 78. Okay. And then the NLST said, you know, they were including patients that had 30 pack years of smoking. Then um, people said, okay, well, but if you consider people that have 20 pack years of smoking and other risk factors, their lung cancer risk might be as high as someone with 30 pack years. So therefore extrapolated over that. CMS cleaned that up and said 30 pack years. Okay. And even yeah. within that range, you know, a 55 year old with 30 pack years who quit, um, you know, 14 years ago has a very different risk profile than a 74 year old with 50 pack years who's still smoking. So even within mm -hmm. that, there's a broad range of individual lung cancer risk. Yeah. We, um, I, I feel like we need to sh call this out at least um, at some point. We we did a prior show talking about medical medical overuse, where there was an article. This VA this VA study found higher false positives than was reported in the NLST, and they used the Bach model to kind of look at that and say the patients in the lowest risk quintile. Um, the number needed to screen to prevent one death was very high. It was like 7,000 versus in the highest risk by the Bach model, the highest risk quintile, it was like the number needed to screen was like 600 or something. And so that kind of had us thinking or questioning like, should we only be screening the patients that stratify even among the eligible population? Should we apply another model and select out the, you know, at some point? And I don't know that that's been done yet. So... I'm not sure what you recommend to our audience and like what we'll ask Cyrus and Leah what they do as well if they're just following USPSTF. I, um, so I think the problem of false positive nodules is huge. And, um, and just as we talked about the last case, the problem of, you know, people get one scan, they feel like, okay, well, I checked and then they're done <laughs> is yeah, also yeah. a problem. Um, when we looked at our initial outcomes, like the first 18 months of our program, we actually had a pretty high malignancy rate. And you wonder whether sort of people that, you know, didn't really report symptoms, but are just generally worried for some reason, were more likely to come and ask for a CT scan, whereas they might not yeah. have come for a visit. That being said, I go through the calculator. So I, I use shouldiscreen.com. And um, the nice thing about that calculator is it gives you the, a picture of the individualized risk. So they'll have, if a thousand people like you or a hundred, depending on how high the risk is, if a thousand people with your risk got screened, this many would die. If a thousand people like you didn't get screened, that many would die. And often people are stunned, right? Because they think, oh, if I just get screened, I'm not going to die of lung cancer and all this smoking risk has gone away. And the reality is like, no, your risk of dying of lung cancer is still high. It's just slightly lower. And it gives you this number of how much lower. Um, mm. And I find that super informative because a lot of patients are like, forget it. I will also say that and, and CMS has regulations around this for the, you know, they will pay for the low-dose CT, but they also require um, kind of 
counseling about the low-dose CT, and that has pretty specific components, but the bulk of that counseling is tobacco cessation. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense in our program, as in other programs, about half the patients who come for lung cancer screening are active smokers. And so if all we're doing is sort of like pre-checking boxes of age, tobacco history, low-dose CT, um, that's not the most effective intervention we can offer those patients. Leah and Cyrus, do you do anything different um, in, in picking your calculator or do you just go by USPSTF? No, I think any visual for shared decision-making is really valuable. Um, I think I mentioned on a previous episode, I use ePrognosis a lot, but they don't have a calculator for lung cancer screening. The AHRQ has a visual, um, and I, I can link to it, that that can show um, patients of patients sort of like you, but it's it's not as um, nuanced as the calculator that Denise referenced, but patients like you, this is the number of people who would have died from lung cancer. This is the number of people who in whom lung cancer um, was diagnosed early. So those visual those visual tools are really helpful. And I, you know, we have to talk about the risks. So there's really high risk of false positives and there is, I think, anxiety and that mental stress of knowing that in many circumstances, you likely do have a, a small lung cancer that we're going to keep monitoring, um, maybe a tiny adenocarcinoma or something like that. So that's a risk as well. Um, and then, of course, selecting the correct patient for screening is important as well. So not only, you know, shared decision-making is soliciting their preferences about if they would want to, you know, un undergo further invasive procedures or treatment if they did have cancer. And also, would do you as their physician think they could tolerate those sorts of things, no matter what their age is? Are they in their 70s, but multimorbid and uh, unlikely to do well with a lung cancer resection? I should know the answer to this. But has anyone looked at, do you see increased rates of tobacco cessation with low-dose CTs being offered. Like, I feel like sometimes it's even offered to make cancer risk more concrete. Do you understand what I mean? So if you're like, you smoked enough that I think we should actually screen you for lung cancer, like that actually sort of makes the risk maybe a little bit more um, palpable. Do we see any changes in smoking rates just with the offering of low-dose CTs? Um, I think I saw, it, go, it can go both ways because they also said some people, when it's <laughs> negative, they're like, I'm good. Oh, that's amazing. Um, sure. So I, I'm not aware of a large scale study, but I think there have been some small ones that have tried to look at that. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. High fives all around. We did it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, Queen of the Health, like, why should I quit now? You know? On Yeah. When we, we had talked very, we, we were at CHEST doing some of our like recap shows, we talked about lung cancer. And one of the speakers, um, Dr. Nina, Nina, I'm sorry, I can't remember how to say your last name. I don't want to butcher it. But Dr. Nina mentioned that uh, that the second, third, fourth year screening are very important. If they just get that first one and say, I'm good, they're missing a lot of the benefit from the lung cancer screening. They have to stick with it in order for it to be beneficial. That is correct. So, I mean, I will say because... Lung cancer screening is such an expensive modality, and the incidentaloma risk is not insignificant, and you know the radiation risk cumulatively is not insignificant. Most places will have a program, so CMS will require uh, before they will pay for a, lo a screening low-dose CT an assessment and. That visit is supposed to have, you know, both the tobacco cessation and addressing the risks, which include the radiation overdiagnosis, the fact that you have to commit um, to doing it. You're not likely to just get the benefit from the one time you do that because you were worried and then it's negative and you're done. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, I use the shouldiscreen.com because it'll go through all of those numbers for patients. Um, together. And so you could, but it, it's not just like a nice thing to do, but it's actually required to do it for them oh, to yeah. pay it. And on the flip side, when we were talking about radiation exposure, one of the quality metrics for lung cancer screening programs is that your follow-up scans should be low dose as well. So in other words, if you get a low dose CT scan and you find a seven millimeter nodule, and then you're getting full radiation diagnostic scans to follow it, that is way more radiation than what is assumed in these algorithms and what is meant to be. So, um, so 
ideally it should be part of a program where they can follow it, you know, follow up the incidental findings and make sure that you, and it's paired with tobacco cessation counseling. Awesome. I think you hit on some really great points there. Um, just like I know at, at Cashlack South are, um, and I think you might've mentioned this as well, our lung cancer screening protocol is hand in hand with our tobacco cessation kind of um, teaching and, and education and resources just because uh, so often, you know, that's those two things just go hand in hand. And so um, it does kind of make things a little bit easier, more approachable to patients. And the, the other thing I'll just foot stomp is just um, I think that point that it's not just a lung cancer or it's not just a low dose CT that we're talking about. It's all of the um, kind of potential aftermath. And I think making sure patients are aware of what might come um, is, is just really, really important. It's part of that shared decision-making process. Leah, did you want to mention that article about, on shared decision-making? So, yeah, there's a GMIM uh, article from 2018, October 2018, by Brenner and colleagues. They evaluated shared decision-making for lung cancer screening. So I'll tell you about the article. And then I love the editorial by Rita Redberg, who whose uh, editorial says failing grade for shared decision-making. So they looked back at, um, they did a qualitative analysis of recorded and transcribed outpatient clinical encounters, looking at was shared decision-making happening for lung cancer screening. And maybe not surprisingly, um, it was not happening. Um, The harms of screening were not uh, adequately explained. They weren't, people were not using decision aids, like these visual decision aids, which can be so helpful to conceptualize the risk um, of or the potential harms of screening. So it's really important. And I think it's not being done and it takes time. If you think about the number of things that you're trying to talk about in your primary care visit, um, it takes a lot of sure decision-making takes time. So I really like the idea of using the should I screen um, visual tool with patients in the visit and showing them how, how you come up with that recommendation. That should be like a goal for all cancer screening programs to like visually show patients like, you know, this is this is your like, you know, likelihood to benefit in in such and such ways or have harms in such and such ways so patients can really see. Because I think when you just say like you smoked, you might have lung cancer, like a lot of people would go for it. But if they knew how low their risk really was or some of the what the harms might actually be, then they might not go for it. Um, so. Denitza, you mentioned this a couple times, the LRADs. We talked about Fleischner, that's for incidental nodules. LRADs is mainly applied to patients. It's kind of like BIRADs when you're doing mammograms, is my understanding. So let's say our patient here, we send her for screening. And uh, now what's the report going to look like from her low-dose CT? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so from the low-dose CT... Um, you know, they'll give you a lung RADS um, reading. So it's exactly supposed to be like by RADS, but for lung cancer screening. So I'm going to, I also have this, um, I have both of those tables actually uh, in my clinic and refer to both of them, but it will give you um, the lung RADS reading, uh, which, let's see, so it goes from Basically, if it's incomplete, but it can go anything from negative um, all the way to suspicious, which would be from one to four, four A and four B are just increasing concern. Um, and then it'll actually have a category for other significant findings. So, you know, you did a low dose CT scan looking for lung nodules, but maybe they have a, you know, I don't know, a thyroid mass or something else. Um, or, um, you know, we found cardiovascular uh, incidental findings a fair amount. And then they'll actually do a modifier because if people have had a prior history of lung cancer, um, then they're in a different risk category. Um, and so that's just the C modifier at the end. Okay. So basically have this table up in your office as well when you're looking through the, when you're looking through these. I do. And, and honestly, because it'll have, you know, if it's really the small nodules, it'll give you like an estimate of, you know, the probability of malignancy is less than 1% and 90% of CTs look like this, right? So um, that has a very different concern and how you communicate compared to someone, um, you know, in the 4A and 4B, like most programs um, would lung cancer screening programs recommend that those patients get presented at a tumor board. Um, 
because you know then the risk of malignancy is hovering more in the 15% and that's a much fewer number of scans that come back with that result okay all right i think that's i think that's really useful a couple just a couple things that um like i think are useful as a budding pulmonologist um that i didn't recognize when i was like a primary care doctor there is obviously significance, uh, or I guess it's obvious now, to the terms we use um, with respect to the type of CT. So like your low-dose CT versus your high-res CT, um, like what does that mean? Typically, our low-dose CTs, the, the, the actual dose varies on your institution. So like if your patients ask you about this, um, the idea, though, is that it's going to be a, a much reduced dose from your typical um, chest CT, which nowadays I think at pretty much all institutions, they are kind of high resolution, i.e. they're all one millimeter cuts. So you can really see, um, some of that high detail, high res detail. Um, at our institution, the, the, the one at, uh, at Cashlack South, the one difference being that if we order a high res CT, you get, um, kind of inspiratory and expiratory films and prone imaging, which can help if you're looking for interstitial lung disease. So just maybe for our listeners who might need a little bit of clarification on, on what those terms are. I agree. And the caveat too is if you have a CTPA with a nodule that size, it's not going to have a lung rads reading, right? So that's why I'll often refer to this table. If I have an incidental nodule um, and, you know, evaluate if they would fit that risk, but look at that table to see what what I should do for them. Um, yeah. Paul had brought in up the question in pre-recording. So once we once we get a suspicious, you know, the, you said four, um, the lung rads comes back as suspicious or very suspicious. What do you want the primary care doctor to do, if anything, before they send that patient your way? What, what should we be doing with those results? You know, honestly, these people end up getting referred, um, getting discussed at a thoracic tumor board. Um, and probably, based on your practice setting, the fastest way of getting that person to a tumor board is kind of what you'd want. So if you have a, you know, 1.3 centimeter spiculated nodule, I don't know that I would send them immediately to thoracic surgery. So um, the recommendations keep evolving. Like within the last few years, you could not get a PET CT on people before um, you had a cancer diagnosis. Now often, um, you know, tumor boards will recommend getting a PET CT in all these people, even if you don't have mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Um, but certainly if it's a suspicious finding, then, you know, if a pulmonologist is your access to a tumor board, then I would send them to a pulmonologist. Okay. So pulmonology or CT surgery. Leah, you were going to? Yeah, I would, I would say here at Cashlack West, and I think some of the other places I've, I've also been, the, the entree into the tumor board is the interventional pulmonologist because they are often the one that's presenting. And then, um, if, you know, there's mediastinal disease or whatever, they might be helping to stage, um, and they're sort of working hand in hand with a thoracic surgeon. So we have, we're lucky that we have a nodule clinic, but it's really the interventional pulmonologists that help determine how that biopsy or, you know, if, if the resection is going to happen, uh, how that happens. I would totally agree with that. I think most places that are big enough to have an interventional pulmonologist, it bypasses the pulmonologist or even if it comes to us, it ends up to IP, um, you know, I imagine out in the real world, there's a lot of places where it's hard to get a pulmonologist, let alone an interventional pulmonologist. Um, and so probably pulmonary, but I, I agree. It's complex enough that if they're high risk, you want to get them to someone that has specialty or subspecialty expertise in this area. Denitza, so I think we're running out of time. I wanted to thank you for all your great teaching. Uh, before we get to your full take-home points, maybe we could just recap some of what we talked about with the lung cancer screening portion of this. We already did our recap for the incidentaloma portion. So I think the the key things for lung cancer screening are one, half of the patients who present for lung cancer screening are actively smoking. So tobacco cessation is part of any kind of discussion and assessment and in lung cancer screening. Um, there are clear guidelines um, about lung cancer screening that are based on age and tobacco history and uh, whether you're actively smoking. Um, and I 
just always refer to shouldiscreen.com because it gives me a visual aid and confirms that the patient is eligible and educates people about the risks of screening as well as the potential benefits. Okay. Leah and Cyrus, anything else you wanted to like footstomp about lung cancer screening? I would say do not screen a patient who you don't think can tolerate. Yes. The geriatric wisdom. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Don't forget that important uh, decision point. Yeah. And it's worth noting in the NLSD, if people were on supplemental oxygen, they were excluded from the trial. So really, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't take much to not be. So now the guidelines are just a general, do you think they would tolerate primary therapy? It's a little tricky because primary therapy for lung cancer can also potentially be uh, radiation therapy. So they might not get surgery and it gets complicated. But yes, um, I agree. Consider what you would do with that information before you go chasing it. Okay, great. Well, Denitza, I can't thank you enough for this is your third appearance on the show. Uh, this has been another great one. Can you give the audience like some of your favorite take home points from this topic? I think this topic can be confusing and overwhelming and um, take heart. You're but, you know, a search engine search away from a table <laughs> that gives you all the data at your fingertips. So none of us Um, You know, even pulmonologists reference this consistently. Um, The big picture things are assess the risk. um, And then the other big picture thing is follow up. And I think that's the one where we tend to fall down is um, knowing when to follow up, but actually being able to implement that with our patients remains a challenge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Leah, any words of wisdom to leave the audience with? And Cyrus, we'll go to you last. Um, I mean, I'm just going to use shouldiscreen.com. I yeah. have not used this for patients, and I am so excited about this website. Do they sponsor podcasts, Paul? Do you? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure <laughs> no, there's no, huge no. profits. <laughs> it's from the University of Michigan, so oh, they're academic. They got money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> I think I think they, along with uh, big big veg, as uh, Paul said a few episodes yeah. ago, they're also you know big big sponsors. You know, I think. Um, I think um, this is uh, it's a really important topic. We see this so often, and, and I'm seeing it obviously more um, now that I'm in, in pulmonary fellowship. And I think, um, you know, while there are nuances here, just like with virtually everything we do, um, utilizing a shared decision making model, really sitting down, talking to your patients, um, whether it be using those motivational inter- interviewing skills to try to um, get them to understand why you think this is important, or if it's just really coming to uh, to a decision together based upon the risks and the benefits. I think that's what's really important. The 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 numbers, the sizes, like Denise said, that's all readily available online. It's just a Google search away. Um, but the ability to actually talk and relay this information effectively, I think, is what we all strive to do. And I think that's what's most important at the end of the day. Okay. And we will. Sure. We and if will. you can talk to them about quitting smoking while you're at it, that's even yeah, better. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. We will fade into the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mmm, yummy. <laughs> Not sure how I feel about that one. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks goes to our producers for this episode. I guess that would be myself and the wonderful Dr. Leah Witt, uh, and to our social media team, which includes Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Cyrus A. Askin. And I've been Matthew Frank Watto. I wanted to thank Stuart, uh, who wasn't here tonight, for producing our theme music or composing our theme music, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Uh, and I've been Dr. Leo Witt. I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>